a husband and his wife went to the pastor of their church for marriage counseling. After about 30 minutes of listening to the wife talk while the husband looked bored and distracted, the pastor asked the husband if he ever pays attention to his wife. The husband looked a little shocked and sat slack-jawed. The pastor then turned to the wife and asked, does he ever kiss you? I mean, really kiss you? The wife looked embarrassed and a little uncomfortable, finally said, well, he kisses me on the cheek every morning before he leaves for work. The pastor sits back in a chair and grins. I have the answer. You obviously have a bunch of stuff to work on, but I think I know how to get the ball rolling. You need to start kissing. You need to start really kissing your wife, Bob, the pastor said. She needs to be kissed, seriously kissed. It'll make her feel more important, and she'll feel like the center of your universe. Bob looked confused, and after a long pause, the pastor said, oh, for God's sake, like this, and stood up and stepped across the room and put a whopper of a kiss on the wife. It was so good that she went limp in his arms. The pastor sat her back in her chair, looked at Bob, and says, like that. Bob stands up, squares up to the pastor, looks him right in the eye, and says, Sounds good, Pastor. I'll bring her by every Tuesday. <laughs> well, as a coincidence would have it, this is Valentine's weekend and we're talking about love. We didn't plan this. It just worked out this way, but it makes it a little more fun. As we talk about relationships and love, it's fun to do it on a weekend when we're all kind of uh, charged in that direction anyway. And this is the third week of our series titled Why Church, where we're looking at The part the church can play in bringing redemption to the four fundamental relationships that were broken when Adam and Eve gave into temptation and declared their freedom from God. Week one, we talked about the relationship that the church is most familiar with, the one we talk about the most, and that's the broken relationship between God and humans. This has been the center of what the church has dealt with for 2,000 years. And last week, we talked about one of the relationships that the church has not spend as much time talking on, about or focusing on. And that's the broken relationship between the human and themselves. The moment Adam and Eve ate the fruit, the Bible tells us they felt shame for the very first time ever. And what we found last week was that shame wasn't in what they had done. It was in who they were. They looked down and they were no longer comfortable with themselves. They, it says that they were ashamed at their own nakedness. They no longer liked the way God had made them. They felt shame for the very first time. Because of sin, they looked down and didn't like what they saw. So they felt the need to cover up the way that God had made them. And although I don't think we should run around naked because we're redeeming this relationship, I do think that what Paul says in Ephesians 2 is important. He said, for we are God's masterpiece. He's created us anew in Christ Jesus so we can do good things We are God's masterpiece. If we walk around feeling broken and feeling like we're never enough and feeling like you're one of God's mistakes, you're one of his abandoned, unfinished works, then you're still living in that broken relationship. And you're not living in the redemption that Jesus worked to give you and died to give you. Well, this week we're talking about this third broken relationship. And the church has applied quite a bit of energy to this one because of what Jesus gave us. In this passage, he said, teacher, someone came to Jesus and said, teacher, which is the most important commandment in the law of Moses? Jesus replied, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. A second is equally important. Love your neighbor as yourself. The entire law and all the demands of the prophets are based on these 
two commandments. We're very familiar with this passage. Love God, love people. These two imperatives that Jesus says summed up the entire scripture, sums up all the other commands. Commands to do what originally came naturally to Adam and Eve. In the beginning, there was no command to love God and love people because Adam and Eve were simply wired for it. In fact, upon meeting Eve for the very first time, Adam says this, at last, he exclaimed, this one is bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. She will be called woman because she was taken out of man. This explains why man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife and the two are united into one. When first presented with the other, the very first other person Adam had ever met, Adam's original reaction was that the the separation and autonomy was insufficient to describe the closeness that he felt. So he declares that this other won't actually be an other, but rather part of himself, one with himself. I mean, we use these words all the time. Imagine how romantic these words would have been the very first time they were spoken. Because of the way I feel about you, No longer will we be two, but rather we're going to be one. Talk about your Valentine. But Adam and Eve experience such love that they don't want to be considered two entities any longer. They see themselves as one until they eat the fruit. We've spent a lot of time in this scripture in this series, but as soon as Adam and Eve ignored God's wishes for them, things started to break. The man and woman felt shame for the first time. As soon as God showed up, they hid from him for the first time ever. And as God confronts Adam about that hiding, the third relationship to be broken is revealed. Who told you you are naked, the Lord asked him. Have you eaten of the fruit I commanded you not to eat? The man replied, it was the woman you gave me who gave me the fruit and I ate it. It was the other. We're so familiar with blame that this doesn't even sound that odd, especially when you go up a few verses and, and find out that this statement is technically true. You don't really understand the depth of what has just happened until you consider Adam's feelings just one chapter ago. That I don't want to be considered two. I want to be considered one. He was trying to erase and ignore the space between he and Eve. And now he's intentionally distancing himself from her. He's intentionally creating space. We're not the same. God, it was her. Don't blame us together. Don't don't treat us like one. It was her over there. And the one became two. Esther and I have done quite a bit of marriage counseling. And One of the shockers for me, maybe one of the most amazing things in the world, isn't that in this broken, fallen, torn up, crazy world, people fall in love. What's amazing to me is that they fall out of love. We've sat in a room with people who, who not that long before couldn't stand being away from each other, who, who felt like they were one, who missed each other after 10 or 15 minutes. Then they find themselves in a room and they can barely even look at each other and they don't want to be with each other. And, and it amazes me that things can fall apart the way they do. And it all tracks back to this moment in Genesis when this man who had felt such intense oneness 
didn't feel it any longer. Adam no longer wants to be one with Eve. He's just fine if she suffers the wrath of God over there by herself. Something is broken. The human's relationship with the other is damaged. And of course, before we can look at what a redeemed relationship to the other might look like, we have to examine the nature of the breaking, right? Now that there is no longer this experience of oneness that they originally felt, what does their relationship look like? And if you literally turn the next page in your Bible to the beginning of the next chapter, here's what you will read. And now Adam had sexual relations with his wife Eve, and she became pregnant. Okay, so maybe things aren't all the way broken. Some things are still working okay. They're still getting along a little bit. And the Bible is full of broken relationships that don't look so broken. When Isaac met Rebecca, it went like this. When Rebecca looked up and saw Isaac, she quickly dismounted from her camel. Different times. Who is that man walking through the field to meet us? She asked the servant. And he replied, it's my master. So Rebecca covered her face and with, with a veil. Then the servant told Isaac everything he had done. And Isaac brought Rebecca into his mother's, Sarah's tent, and she became his wife. He loved her deeply. And she was a special comfort to him after the death of his mother. Isaac's son Jacob fell so desperately in love with Rachel that the Bible says this. So Jacob worked seven years to pay for Rachel, but his love for her was so strong that it seemed to him only a few days. And of course, the Valentine to end all Valentines from Song of Solomon, you have captured my heart, my treasure, my bride. You hold it hostage with one glance of your eyes. With a single jewel of your necklace, your love delights me, my treasure, my bride. Your love is better than wine, your perfume more fragrant than spices. Your lips are, so, are as sweet as nectar, my bride. Honey and milk are under your tongue. Your clothes are scented like a cedars of Lebanon. Gross. But... You are at my private garden, my treasure, my bride, a secluded spring, a hidden fountain. I actually had to stop there because the next verse is so racy that it's not suitable for church. <laughs> Solomon sets the bar pretty high for the rest of us trying to write nice Valentine's letters to our ladies. But the Bible is full of stories of couples who certainly didn't seem to be in the midst of a broken relationship with the other. My story wasn't as powerful as Isaac, Jacob, and Solomon's, but Esther and I have been dating a couple weeks, and we were part of this small group that met several times a week, Bible studies and prayer meetings and all kinds of stuff. We were together all the time, and uh, our group had been together, and at the end of the night, Esther was heading home. I walked her out to the car and uh, in the parking lot, walked her out to the car, and we had our first real kiss. Like, I'd given her a couple pecks on the cheek, you know, goodbye kisses, but this was our first real kiss. And I walked back into the apartment where we all met, and I literally walked in the door, dropped on my knees and said, you guys have got to pray for me because I'm in big trouble. I knew that I was hooked, and I wanted to do it right, and I knew that I was going to need prayer to do that. And so literally, our entire group circled me and laid hands on me and prayed that I would be a good boy. Many of you have similar stories. So when so many people in the Bible, almost every Disney character ever, and all of us are capable of such deep and amazing love. And obviously this morning we're just right now focusing on romantic love, but when love seems so readily available, we have to ask what exactly was broken. 
And I think this is easiest to see as Jesus outlined what true redemption might look like when he said this. You have heard the law says love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say love your enemy. Pray for those who persecute you. In that way, you'll be acting as true children of your Father in heaven. For he gives his sunlight to both the evil and the good. And he sends rain to the just and the unjust. If you love only those who love you, what reward is there in that? Even corrupt tax collectors do that. If you're kind only to your friends, how are you different from anyone else? Even pagans do that. But you are to be perfect, even as your Father in heaven is perfect. Love your enemies, which is crazy, right? Who does that? I mean, honestly, let's be honest. Most of us have trouble loving the people that we love, the people that we actually like being around. Does anyone have a two-year-old? Anyone else other than me have a two-year-old that they love but sometimes struggle to love? Teenager? Anybody have a teenager? They're my children, my little mini-me's, and sometimes I struggle to love them. I know this is Valentine's weekend, so everybody's romance tanks are full, but anyone's ever struggled to love the person that you vowed to love till death do you part? And if loving the people that are easy to love is hard, what chance do we have of loving our enemies? But the most powerful part of this verse for our use this morning isn't just the part about loving your enemies. It's, it's that second half. If you are kind only to your friends, how are you different from anyone else? Even the pagans do that. Just before that, he said, if you love only those who love you, what reward is there in that? Even corrupt tax collectors do that. Remember, we're dealing with the question if, the relationship between us and the other is broken, and yet we fall so deeply in love. What exactly was broken? Well, it seems here the ability to love is not what we're talking about. In Jesus' words, even pagans do that. Even pagans love. Even non-believers, even people who have nothing to do with God, love. So this relationship that was broken in the garden when human sin doesn't keep us from loving. The entire Bible and history and even Jesus himself make it obvious that whatever happened between Adam and Eve is more subtle than just the ability to love. So what broke? And even more, what does redemption look like? Well, to get to the bottom of that, let's start with Jesus' final prayer. Just a couple hours before his arrest, after the meal that he had just spent with his disciples saying, this is the night, this is the night. Jesus has one last chance to say whatever is really important to him, to talk to the Father one last time before he goes to the cross. And here's what Jesus prays. He says, and I give myself as a holy sacrifice for them so they can be made holy by your truth. I'm praying not only for these disciples, but also for all who will ever believe in me through their message. That's us. I pray that they will be one, just as you and I are one. As you are in me, Father, and I am in you, and may they be in us so that the world will know you sent me. I've given them the glory you gave me so they may be one as we are one. 
I am in them and you are in me. May they experience such perfect unity that the world will know you sent me and that you love them as much as you loved me. What was it that Adam said when he saw the first human that wasn't him? Because of this, two shall be one. Redemption between ourselves and others is maybe the hardest relationship to redeem. Because it's deeper than loving your neighbor. It's even deeper than loving your enemy. Redeeming this broken relationship means the human, the other, is to be removed as the other. And we are to see ourselves in them. I'm not talking about losing our autonomy and becoming an amorphous blob of unity, but I am talking about having the ability to see ourselves in someone else. I'm talking about looking across any of the myriad of walls that divide us and label us and categorize us and finding some, someone with whom we completely disagree and saying, you are bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. Throughout the study, we've been dipping into Paul's writings a little bit to let the great apostle weigh in on this discussion. And here's the way Paul talks about the redemption between this broken relationship. He says, for you are all children of God through faith in Jesus Christ. And all who have been unified with Christ in baptism have put on Christ like putting on new clothes. There is no longer Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. This is one of the most challenging verses in Paul for me. These are huge categories. Society is built on these categories. The majority of the Old Testament is about clearly defining and attaching responsibility to these categories. There are clear guidelines for how to reinforce and perpetuate the difference between Jews and Gentiles, slaves and free, male and females. It's as if the brokenness between people was so deep we had to codify it. And along comes Jesus. And because of the work that he accomplished on the cross, Jesus is able to go back to that same exact language that Adam used in the fall. Let them be one. Adam said, because of this, the two shall be one. How do we respond to this? First, let me say that I don't think Paul's list is exhaustive. When Paul says Jew or Greek, slave or free, male or female, I believe he means all the categories that stand between us. Republican and Democrat, Baptist and Catholic, dog lover and cat lover. We don't watch a lot of sports in my house, mainly because we don't have time. So whenever there's a big game on Super Bowl, Final Four, whatever sporting event there is. My house has very little allegiance because we really don't watch much, unless, of course, Kansas City's in a big game. But, but it's funny because it never fails. Whenever we put a game on, my little ones will come in and go, who are we rooting for? And usually I root for the underdog, but I'll tell them we're voting for the whoever's. And suddenly they're like diehard fans. They're like screaming at the other team, come on, ref, this is terrible, that guy sucks. It's almost like they need a team. They need to know whose side am I on? Who are the others? It's deeply wired in us. It has been 
since the moment Adam said she did it. It wasn't me. It wasn't us. It was she. We want to identify ourselves against the other. And redemption calls us to do better. If I can be honest, I think the church is pretty bad at this. I first started getting truly convicted of this reading Dietrich Bonhoeffer. If you're not familiar with Bonhoeffer, he was a German theologian just prior to World War II. He's most famous for standing up against the Nazi party, despite the fact that he was an Aryan German and his dad was a scientist working basically for the government. He could have skated through World War II. He was, he was privileged, had all the right connections and bloodline, but instead he stood up for the Jews and spent most of the war in a concentration camp where he was eventually hung. And I love the example that Bonhoeffer sets as a martyr, but I struggle wondering if this kind of German icon gained us a martyr or lost us a theologian. Because before getting consumed with the politics of World War II, Bonhoeffer wrote about the church. His doctoral thesis was about the church, and, and most of his stuff was revolutionary. He was a pacifist, not at a time when that was totally uncool, because he reasoned that because of the verses we're talking about tonight, as a German Christian, he technically had more in common with an English Christian than he did with a German non-believer. And so he couldn't imagine putting himself in a situation where he might be forced to shoot at somebody who he was truly brother with, alongside somebody that he actually wasn't that close to. Technically, according to Paul, there's no more Jew, no more Greek, no more slave, no more German, no more English. So Bonhoeffer declared himself a pacifist for that reason. He also regularly attended a Catholic cathedral, which is a huge deal for a Lutheran in Germany to do. But he loved the reverence that was in the very architecture and the, and the grandeur and glory that was given to God. And so he, he went to the, to the Catholic Church just to worship in that atmosphere. He spent a year in ministry in New York and could not understand the segregation in America at the time. And he called it America's Negro problem in all of his writings. He, he, couldn't, he went to a, a block where there was a white church on one side of the street and a black church on the other side of the street, and they didn't mix at all. And he could not make this make sense in his head. And so he wrote constantly back to uh, his family in Germany about this ridiculous problem the Americans have, that they honestly think the color of their skin is, is more important than their faith in Jesus. And he couldn't make any sense out of it. Incidentally, whenever he wasn't actually scheduled to minister in, uh, in the church where he was serving for a year, he went to Harlem and, and went to this all-black church because he fell in love with gospel music. He had never heard it before. He was a classically trained violinist and pianist. And so he said he, this pure white German would stand in the back of this all-black church and just soak up this glorious gospel music. And he, uh, he actually bought several albums. And when he went back to Germany, he, he started a seminary called Sinkenwalder. And, uh, and one of the rules of going to his seminary was you spent one hour every morning listening to Harlem gospel music. He'd put on the little record, and they would all just gather around this record player and listen to these Germans would listen to Harlem gospel music. In his doctrinal thesis, Bonhoeffer theorized that the reason that theology got so diverse and extreme 
was because we kept dividing rather than committing to one another to stay together and hammer out our theology together in community. And honestly, it was reading Bonhoeffer years ago that first gave me the vision that we're trying to live out here at Open Table. It's not about saying that our differences don't matter. They do matter, and they always have. I guarantee you, even though Adam looked at Eve and, and, he, and he wanted to erase this closeness, he wanted true unity, he wanted two to become one, I guarantee that did not mean he was volunteering to bear the children. I guarantee that's not what he meant by that. The differences matter. For Adam, it was that this is another human Adam had been hunting for a companion. If you read what goes in front of that, he had been going through the animals looking for something like him. God had said, it's not good for you to be alone. And so Adam is looking for someone like him. And when he sees Eve, he sings, we are the same. Obviously, there were differences. Praise God for the differences, right? But Adam saw through the differences and basically sang a song that said, I am a human and you are a human. And that changes everything. So I think we start there. We start by saying no matter how much different that other person is from me, no matter how much I might disagree with everything they say and everything they stand for, they're a human. That means they're made in God's image. And honestly, that means the things that connect us are far greater than the things that divide us. You are bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. So we widen our vision a little bit. We tend to focus so tight on the little things. I mean, think about racism. We, we focus on the color of our skin. So, so much of what makes us human is exactly the same. And this one funky little detail we cling to and, and how much damage has been done because we're so small-sided. Adam wasn't comparing Eve to another human with a little different skin tone. He's comparing Eve to a giraffe. And that made all the difference. This is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. This one's like me. This one is so similar to me. Yeah, there's differences, but this one is so much like me. Almost any human on this planet you can look at, you can go, this is so much like me. There's so much here that's similar. So Adam sings this song, bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh will be one. But if simply being human isn't enough, Paul tells us this, for you are all children of God through faith in Jesus Christ. And all who have been unified with Christ in baptism have put on Christ like putting on new clothes. Our faith in Jesus makes us one. Our unity is based on the fact that we all go through the same baptism. I'm sure this is why we try to make the theology of faith in Jesus so complicated because we don't want to have to admit that someone else is on our team. We don't want to trust that when they say they believe in Jesus, they really do. We want to make it really complex so we can ostracize them and see them as the other. Because otherwise we have to admit that we're one. Despite our differences, they're, they're worshiping the same Jesus that we are. But if we can convince ourselves that despite what they actually say, and despite the fact that they've been baptized just like us, 
they don't really have faith in Jesus. So we don't really have to be one with them, right? In fact, let me give you a little litmus test. For the past several years, the Catholic Church has been under tight public scrutiny for allegations of assault and misconduct and abuse. How many of you lamented that your church was guilty of such things? How many of us repented on behalf of the Catholic Church? Most of us just pointed fingers, right? Yeah, those Catholics. What do you expect? It was that woman you gave me. Right? We created separation. We, we pushed away and said, yeah, but that's them over there. Incidentally, Pope Francis for the first time is turning evidence over to the public authorities, outside law enforcement, which has never been done before. He's allowing, he's vowed to stand by whatever the investigations bring up, including all punishment. So they're heading in a better direction. A good thing to remember is to the unchurched, all those divisions don't exist. It's just Christians. We only recognize those divisions in our camp. The world out there doesn't see that. They don't see all the different divisions that we try to create so that we can hold ourselves separate, so we can go, yeah, but that's not me. That's not my church. That's The world, we're all just Christians. So what we, can we do at Open Table to bring redemption to this broken relationship? Well, first, you be you. We have to start with last week's message. As vulnerable as it may be, you have to bring your true and authentic self to open table. Don't conform to something you think we want. Just be you. You be you. And if that brings tension into our world, we need that tension. We need you to make us uncomfortable. In fact, whenever I preach this type message, I'm tempted to say no talking about politics at all, like make a church rule. I think most of us, suffer from political fatigue and it's nice to have church where you can just kind of hide from that in a refuge. But I know that some of you guys are political nut jobs and you have to talk about it. And that's, that's, it wouldn't be fair for me to tell you, you know, you can't do that because I want you to be you. You be you. And second, stop looking for reasons to divide. Have you ever noticed how we do this? Very few of us enter church looking for real connection, we usually come like with our guard up. Like we're just waiting for that thing that offends us and makes us angry so we can go, yeah, that's another one of those churches. And we throw it out the door. Like we, we come in ready to be offended. We come in like almost ready to leave. As soon as he says that one thing or preaches that one thing, I'm out of here, right? But here's the deal. We study scripture together here and I dig into it all week. I come and present it. But I in no way feel like you have to agree with me. Like if I will never tell you this is, you have to believe this to go here. You can think I'm a nutcase spouting nonsense and I'd still love to do life with you. I won't always say things that you agree with, but when you ask me for prayer, I promise I'll pray for you. When you're hurting, I'll listen. When you need someone, I'll try to be there. When did we ever get the idea that church was about agreeing with each other? 
Can you imagine if when Eve showed up, Adam gave her a questionnaire to to determine her theological leanings and political affiliations? No, he was like, finally, I don't have to do life alone. I have people. So along with being yourself is let others be themselves and don't run from that. Commit to sitting in the tension and see what God does as he works in you and in the other. Martin Luther King has a famous quote, injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. I don't mean to make light of the reverend's words, but I prefer the one that goes, if mama ain't happy, ain't nobody happy. We throw that around like it's a joke, but the truth is there's a powerful lesson there. It's not a bad thing to say my happiness is tied in with other people's happiness. Like the better they do, the better I do. The plight of the marginalized is my plight. We have to learn to see ourselves in the other. I grew up around a lot of racists, small town America in the Bible Belt, unfortunately, was pretty racial. I determined that the most racist word I ever heard was them and they. A lot of the words we hide from are, are inflammatory, but there's nothing deeper and more damaging than the word them. I used to hear, I don't have a problem with them as they stay on their side of the road. Of all the hate speech, that's the worst. Because this is that old broken relationship. Fighting against the redemption that Jesus bought with his blood. They over there. She did it. We have to resist this kind of language. We can't think and talk in terms of them and they. We have to do better. We have to be we and us. One of the main reasons we chose the name Open Table for our church because nothing defines or defies division like a table. Whether you put your napkin in your lap or you tuck it into your shirt, the food still has to go into your mouth. You still eat just like everybody else. Whether your elbows go on the table or not, you still need proteins, carbs, and fats like everybody else. Whether it's sushi and filet mignon or or you like fried chicken, watermelon, and collard greens like I do, you still eat at a table. Sure, we can disagree and we can fight at a table, but if you stop and look around the table, we have millions of reminders that we're the same as everybody else at this table. We have more that joins us than separates us. And redeeming this broken relationship is to walk in that. Let's go to the table.